The Nobel Prize is considered the most prestigious award in the world. Our discussion today is on one of the most singular recipients of that celebrated distinction, one of the three 1965 award winners in physics. Richard P. Feynman got his award for work done in the late 1940s, which advanced quantum theory. But his work both before and after this was profound, too. As a young postdoctoral student, he found himself at age 24 working on the Manhattan Project. Despite his relative youth, he distinguished himself in that epic effort which brought the world the atomic bomb. Author Burton Feldman in The Nobel Prize noted that Feynman remained impressively productive after winning the award. Asked to serve on the Rogers Commission, which investigated the 1968 Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, he famously showed what had led to the tragedy with an experiment that was simplicity itself. Feynman dropped a bit of O-ring material into his ice water glass and demonstrated how dangerously stiff cooling made the rubber. We don't discuss Richard Feynman today because he was a distinguished scientist, original thinker, or gifted teacher with a knack for the elegant demonstration, though he was all three. Our interest in Dick Feynman comes from his contribution to American Letters. We've suggested to you, dear listener, on multiple occasions that your home library is incomplete if it does not contain a copy of Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, a book written for the popular press. This 1985 work spent 14 weeks in the New York Times bestseller list while winning rave reviews from book critics. The volume was subtitled Adventures of a Curious Character, and its funny yet educational anecdotes took Feynman from being slightly famous in his field, as he described it, to a more general kind of fame. Richard Feynman wrote another fine book, What Do You Care What Other People Think, a year later, but passed away in 1988 at age 70, leaving an American public clamoring for more of his observations. Fortunately for us all, Michelle Feynman has compiled a collection of letters to and from her celebrated father, which is now available through your local bookseller. We have read Perfectly Reasonable Deviations from the Beaten Track, the letters of Richard P. Feynman, and and can report that it's terrific. Naturally, we're delighted to be joined by his daughter and editor to talk about this compilation. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Michelle Feynman. Thank you very much. Michelle, you note that your father was irreverent about himself and you feel this was a key to his success as a teacher. In fact, your introduction opens with the illustration that after Omni magazine named your dad the smartest man in the world, your grandmother cracked, if Richard's the smartest man in the world, God help the world. (laughs) (laughs) Noting your father was the first one to laugh. So how was irreverence key to his teaching? Um... Well, you know, I suppose he didn't he didn't take himself too seriously, and um, uh, so any question was permissible. In fact, um, one of the classes that he's known for uh, was not offered on the um, Caltech uh, curriculum, but was a, a non-credit course um, called Physics X, where he would meet with students um, very informally. You know, it wasn't in the catalog. It wasn't really advertised at all. It was just kind of word of mouth. And... Uh, and he would sit around on the on the campus. They would some often meet outside, and um, and he would he would take any question um, on physics. And and I guess it was sort of um, the week the week's assignment was to try to stump Feynman. <laughs> and um, and I don't think I don't think that that happened many times. But it's it's I think it's remarkable that you know um, a physicist of his stature would take the time out to, you know, he wasn't being paid any extra for, for teaching this class. Um, uh, you know, he would just spend time with the students and, and um, welcome, you know, absolutely any any question. And, um, you know, I think this is something that, um, you know, he just had a pure love for teaching. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because in combination of his love for teaching and, and taking some civic duties very seriously, um, you noted that he volunteered a great deal of time to improve California's elementary math textbooks. And, and, I, and I love your story, um, a personal note from you about how he was impatient with inflexible thinking and how he challenged your algebra teacher after you solved the problem in a way that was non-standard because it, if anything seems clear about your dad, he relished thinking problems through in non-standard ways. Can you tell us about what happened? Well, you know, I would be doing my homework, and uh, and he'd sort of peer over my shoulder and say, oh, do you want a shortcut? You know, and, and <laughs> so he would he would teach me very, you know, fun ways, and, and I would, you know, trot to school the next day, you know, very proud and, you know, show it to everyone. And, and, uh, and the teacher would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you the full full credit for that problem. It's, um, you know, it's solved by, by other, other ways than, you know, what's being taught. Um, and, and this went on for a while, and, and finally my father just had enough, and, uh, and he arranged a, a meeting with the teacher, and, and I, you know, I don't think that, that the teacher knew who he was, um, and just, you know, met with, with some student's father, and, uh, and they were talking about algebra and, and so forth, and my, my father had all these ideas, and, and, um, and the, the teacher said to Feynman, you should, you should read some math books. <laughs> and, and my father, you know, I think was really trying not to, you know, not to embarrass me or mess things up for me at school, mm-hmm. you know, just couldn't stand it anymore and, um, and said, you know, sir, I have written math books. Um, and the, the interesting thing, I mean, I knew about this episode, obviously, because it affected me very much. I had to change my whole schedule. The, the teacher, once he was uh, made aware of the fact of, you know, my father working at Caltech and, and you know, being a Nobel uh, laureate, he, um, he didn't want to have me in the class anymore. And, um, and so I had to, you know, change, change classes and change schedules and everything. But um, but what I didn't know about this episode was that my father wrote um, wrote this man an apology, and it was only on working on this book that that I that I discovered it. I think this book really has captures his more sensitive side, a side that we don't always see. Well, you certainly do see him from 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 many many angles, from the the choice of letters that you selected, which is just fascinating. I remember that after your father had passed away, someone wrote a letter to Scientific American, I think. Um, with an anecdote I thought was which was related to your story about him that and math that uh, I don't know whether it was at Princeton or Cornell exactly where he was but one of the kids who was a real math whiz who'd been respected by everyone for his ability had labored over some problem some equation for months hadn't gotten anywhere finally goes and asks your dad for help and in about 15 minutes he cracks the problem and the writer said that he and everybody else was just was just stunned and it, it seems that your dad really did, and, he, and surely you're joking, he explains how he developed a lot of these varied methods, and this seems to be a major factor in his success. You know, he was always interested in, in taking a shortcut, you know, and, uh, and, and he had worked out various, he just loved playing with numbers, and, um, and so maybe he was able to, I don't really know the story that you mentioned, but maybe he was able to, um, to jump uh, on the problem so to speak, uh, a little further ahead than, than this person had to start. And so that's maybe why he was able to solve it so, so quickly. But, um, no, I mean, he was really a phenomenal mind, and um, yet, yet a very ordinary, you know, unassuming person um, in, a, in a sort of everyday family life. He never, 
you never would have thought if you'd met this man on the street that that um, you know he was he was uh, one of the minds of his generation and, and a Nobel Prize laureate. You, you know, never would have crossed your mind. Well, you, you close your book with a really fascinating exchange between a man from Alaska named Vincent Vanderhyde and, and your father. And Mr. Vanderhyde wrote was writing about his 16-year-old son and, and that he and his son had read, surely you're joking, about which he said, I read the book, very funny. But we noticed almost every story had some point to it. This isn't just some book of funny stories. It's a book about how the world works. Clever. And, and, and I, I surely think he got that right. But why, why did you choose to close the book with that exchange that centered on this, this man's 16-year-old son? That was just one of my favorite letters through the... And, I, you know, most of the letters are arranged in a chronological order. Um, that letter is a little bit out of sequence. But it was sort of the only one to end on. I don't know. I mean, it really seems to um, encapsulate my father's... Uh, a lot of my father's personality and, and his... Um, his attitudes about life. I, I just, I just felt that it was the one to, to end on. It was actually not something I, I questioned very long. Um, I don't know. It just sort of seemed to work. No, I think it was a great choice. No, thank you. Your father seemed to have been startlingly frank uh, for some people's tastes about how he found that the fame the Nobel Prize brought him uh, was uh, was a mixed blessing. You talk about that. He didn't like honors. Um, his father sold uniforms and. Um, had brought my father up with the knowledge that, you know, the person is the same with the uniform as, as without the uniform. And, and, you know, there are many, many times in his life that he was, he was um, involved in some sort of honorary society, I think first in high school and then later with the, uh, the National Academy of Sciences. You know, the whole thing made him uncomfortable. And, and it seemed that, that the chief um, objective of, of both these groups was to uh, keep everyone else out, <laughs> to, you know, um, or to be very selective and, and somewhat uh, cliquish about who you let in. You know, the, the physicists all wanted to, to stay together and not let a, a chemist in. And, and right. you know, he thought that that was, you know, in- incredibly idiotic. And, um, and he just didn't have any kind of time for that sort of stuff. In fact, when he was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize, he actually asked a reporter off the record if, if he could refuse it right. without making a, a fuss. And uh, the reporter said, no, I, I think you're going to have to accept it. Right. There are a lot of letters in this book that, um, that really kind of illustrate his, his dislike of, of fame. Um, you know, the Nobel Prize is, uh, and there's a, an accompanying um, article in the Los Angeles Times and a, um, a man, you know, just lays into him for, for some of the comments that he makes. He sounds, I guess, like he just doesn't um, appreciate the, the Nobel Prize. And, and you know, I, I think a surprise from reading these letters was that, you know, that he even took the time to write this person back. Right. I think is, um, is something that, you know, I don't know that I would have done that. Um, and that he's so generous. I know he was a kind man, but um, but you know he's writing to people that he that he never met and and would never see again, and and you know it's really it's remarkable. I was quite impressed by a letter that he got from a Raymond Rogers. I, I think that's not the one you're referring to, but this uh, yes, is, yes, where he was actually really quite insulting, and and your father just I wouldn't have thought he even responded at all, but responded in a very calm and kind way, mm-hmm. and compliments the man. Yes, exactly, and tries to find sort of um, the common ground for both of them. So I, I agree. I think the original letter was, was somewhat um, insulting, and uh, this man really didn't hold anything back, and, um, and yet my father is very accepting of, of it all. 
I think the single most intriguing letter, maybe among many intriguing letters, was the long one that your your, your father wrote to, to you and your mother when he was investigating the Challenger um, explosion disaster. And he's sort of talking about the politics. He's delicately, seemingly explaining that, well, what they're probably going to do here is uh, bury with all the attention and technical details. I can be occupied so they have time to soften up dangerous witnesses, etc. But it won't work because, one, I do technical information exchange and understanding much faster than they imagine, and two, I already smell certain rats. Can you talk about how determined he was to come to some concrete conclusions in that investigation and not let any sort of fuzzy conclusions be put out? He had the knowledge going into this commission that he was pretty much the only one there who had who didn't have any kind of political ties. He was perhaps the the only one who could really it was up to to be. Uh, to be impartial and uh, and to say things the way they were, I think he felt that that burden very um, very strongly and wanted to um, you know wanted to get to the bottom of it and you know if there were going to be any political problems he would take them because he had nothing to lose. We're speaking with Michelle Feynman about the book she has edited, perfectly reasonable deviations from the beaten track, the letters of Richard P. Feynman, her father. Um, Michelle, you, you published a letter uh, regarding a KXTV interview that was 19, 1959. There was a response um, from the station to record another interview with your dad, which he more or less writes back and says, I cannot conceive that antagonism can result from the way I express myself, from only the, from the fact that I did express myself. You actually published that interview in its entirety in the appendix. Why do you think that was such, a, such an important um, interview? I liked his letter back to them. Um, and and I thought that you know without the interview uh, you wouldn't really appreciate maybe you know you wouldn't have any um, uh, perspective you know for what they were talking about um, so so that was um, that was something that you know when we were in the process of getting permissions I knew if I didn't get the interview I wouldn't I wouldn't use the the letter they went together in in my mind I think that he was he was kind of shortchanged on that interview you know they right. He spoke his mind. He was always he was always frank, and um, and that refused to do another interview. And they agreed. They ran it, but they um, they didn't run it at the advertised time. Right. And some you know they ran it much earlier or something in the day. And and so very few people were were able to see it. I, I guess they felt that it was somewhat controversial. But the fact that my father was so proud of uh, of the interview and felt that it had been handled with considerable skill, you know, I felt that. That you know that that deserved to be published. Yes, quote from that actually appeared in the Scientific 100 by John Simmons. Apparently, a lot of people uh, paid attention to uh, to what he had to say in in that uh, interview, and I'm glad I'm glad you published it. I want to do a, a couple short letters, just very short comments <laughs> that really I, th I thought captured your father, uh, or seemed to capture some of his his wit. Um, a letter Richard P. Feynman to Beryl Cochran. I guess she'd written him asking about teaching children arithmetic. <laughs> he wrote back and said, as I get more experience, I realize I know nothing whatsoever as to how to teach children arithmetic. I did write some things before I reached my present state of wisdom. Perhaps the reference you heard came from the article which I enclose. At present, however, I do not know whether I agree with my past self or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, he really, um, he wasn't afraid to, uh, to, to, to make a stand like that, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, rare, rare is the person that would express that sentiment. Exactly, yeah. Another one, they wrote him about string theory, which is currently uh, all the rage, I guess, in physics. They're debating whether it's valid back and forth. In 1985, 
He was asked by Dr. Koshland of Science Magazine to give his perspective on the new theory of strings. And you, you publish his response, which says, uh, In response to your request for an article on strings, I, I don't believe in them, but then I haven't studied them well enough to know why I don't believe in them. Such prejudice would not make an appropriate article. <laughs> Sincerely, yeah. Richard Feynman. Again, just, uh, you know, cutting to the chase. Yep, very straightforward. I mean, I think really appreciated his, um, his uh, you know, just his incisive thinking. You know, when I would read these eight pages, nine pages sometimes of, of kind of rambling thoughts from people, and I would think, where's the question? What is he going to write back? And then, <laughs> you know, he would, he would just nail it in, in his response very, very cleanly, very quickly. Um, you know, I received your letter with its unhappy cry of, you know, um, and it's just, it's really a, a testament to, to his, his quick thinking and, and um, Yeah, how he's able just to reframe what, what the guy's trying to say for him exactly. better than the guy's doing himself. Yes. The Feynman name is, is not really included among those who staunchly defend the, the creation of the A-bomb or, or later criticized it. Your father said simply later that there was a fear that Hitler would get it first, and for that reason it was a necessary endeavor. Can we talk about your father's sense of what letting that genie out of the bottle meant? You're right. He, he does say that uh, that his major reason for working on the atomic bomb was that the Nazis would, would make it first uh, and conquer the world. Um, but, you know, he did later question that decision, and, and in 1982 spoke publicly in support of a nuclear weapons freeze. I think for many years, to kind of a um, socially irresponsible role, um, I think those were the words he, he described um, himself, that you know he wanted to he wanted to work on physics and um, and so he was he was going to be a little bit you know not as responsible perhaps as as he could have been and and you know stand up for for example you know atomic weapons and and so forth uh, but I, I think he did feel very very strongly especially towards the end of his life that this was you know an unfortunate unfortunate legacy to be remembered for. Michelle, I wanted to, to bring up a little personal matter. When I, when I was a medical resident uh, some years back, Science Magazine published an excerpt from the soon-to-be-published Surely You're Joking. It was titled Los Alamos from Below. One of the doctors in town had wrote a rather nasty letter to the magazine as regards your father's quote. I think what, what irked him was that he, he noted that he'd taken a lesson from mathematician and computer scientist John von Neumann who had pointed out to him that one cannot be responsible for the world one lives in. Your dad said this attitude was one he developed, and it made him a happy man, and that, that irritated the doctor. But in rereading that article, preparatory to, to talking with you, um, what sticks in my mind is what you're just talking about. It closes with a description of a sense of foreboding he had after the bomb became a reality, and he quotes a fellow scientist, Bob Wilson, who said after the Trinity test, that they'd all started on a project for good reason, but now he, Wilson, thought they'd made a terrible thing. And, and your dad was clearly wondering aloud, you know, wondering in print, you know, was that not so? Yeah, I mean, he went through a period just after the war, you know, his, his first wife, um, and there's, there's a, a lot of correspondence with, with her, um, from her in, in this book. And, um, uh, but his first wife died just before... Uh, the end of the war, and then his father died just after. And um, I think those two people that were so important to his life, um, you know, losing them and then, um, you know, feeling feeling somewhat unsure about, you know, the future of, of the world and, and, you know, what part he had played in it. Um, he, he describes how he would 
wander around New York and, and see construction and think, you know, what's the point? I mean, you know, this, what, don't they know that, you know, that the world is all going to end? And I mean, he was really in, um, in just a funk for, for many, many years. Uh, and I think that, that um, his feelings about the atomic bomb definitely had, had a lot to do with it. Well, one thing I enjoy about your books is, is uh, your book is the pictures you have. Your dad always seems to be having a great time whenever he's engaged in. And uh, he, he sort of strikes me as a man who personified that bumper sticker, Why Be Normal? And he relishes yeah. <laughs> telling stories about playing bongos and playing in samba bands and, and et cetera. Um, have you followed his lead in life in, in that respect? Um, well, you know, I, I guess I've tried. I mean, the, the, um, there's a quote in this book that I really like where uh, he writes to somebody, you cannot develop a personality with physics alone. The rest <laughs> of your life must be worked in. <laughs> and, you know, and I think it really um, it, it says a lot about, about this, this forever curious man who was, you know, interested in, in things as, uh, as different as, you know, drawing, um, deciphering Mayan, drumming, cracking safes. Um, I don't know that I have so many varied interests, but <laughs> but I um, I'm certainly trying to to follow his lead with um, a lot of the philosophies that that he raised me with, and and do the same with my children. So we, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I was amazed, Michelle. There's a wealth of information about your dad, including some videos of his lectures on the web. What what are some of your favorite sites you might point people to? Feynman.com is a good one. Uh -huh. um, I would probably start there. My last question would be that, that play QED with Alan Alda got some great reviews, despite the fact one reviewer said Alda doesn't look or speak like your dad. Um, do you feel that captured your father, and are there, are there some other movies or plays you'd recommend? Well, you know, I, I do think that Alan Alda was a good choice. Um, and, um, you know, I remember in, in junior high sort of thinking about who, who would play my father, you know, because... It was just a game. I don't know. Growing up in Hollywood, perhaps. Right. <laughs> um, in Los Angeles, you know, this is sort of a game that that um, <laughs> we played. Of you know, well, one day when we become famous, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to make movies of all our lives. Sure. So who's you know, let's let's cast it right now. And um, and perhaps I didn't know too many people. We didn't have a lot of TV in the house, but but my mother um, watched uh, watched Mash, and uh, and so I knew Alan Alda, and I thought. Yeah, here's a guy who's got the same kind of twinkle in his eye and the same, um, the same sense of, of curiosity and, and not taking things for granted and you know finding finding things out for yourself and you know I just thought that that he would be a great choice and and I and I still do you know and and I remember when I was watching the play I didn't really expect because I mean okay he doesn't really look a whole lot like him but um, and he didn't he didn't do um, he wasn't really doing like a character. He didn't have uh, an accent or anything. And um, but there were times that uh, I would just see him in my peripheral vision, and I thought, "Oh, that's him. Wow. That's you know." So I was um, very taken by that. I and um, and I do think his personality is is just very very close. Um, I, I think you know he was a he was a wonderful person to to capture my father's enthusiasm for life. So yeah, I thought he was I thought he was a great choice. Um, apparently, they're working on something now. I don't know when it'll come out, but um, but they're working on another uh, a movie for. Um, um, well, actually, I'm not sure how much of this is official. So, uh, but Alan Alda is working on something else. Oh, uh, great! We're, we're we're very pleased to hear that. We've been talking to Michelle Feynman, who has edited the, the letters of her father, Nobel Prize winning physicist 
and delightful character, Richard P. Feynman, into a book, Perfectly Reasonable Deviations from the Beaten Track. We think you're going to want to read this book, and, and we thank you very much for speaking with us about it, Michelle Feynman. Oh, thank you very much. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.